Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. So it's fitting that we concluded the message last week with uh, the Great Commission from Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, This is known as the Great Commission. In the other uh, accounts of the Great Commission, uh, Mark's biography of Jesus' life, it it comes in the additional scripture verses that we uh, don't have in the original manuscripts, but I'm still going to read it. Mark summarizes it as Jesus saying, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Luke summarizes the call of Jesus with his words, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And finally, John, in his account of Jesus' life, records his final words, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. The call is make disciples, preach the gospel, be my witnesses, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Each is a little different, but in summation, the call is clear. Go make disciples through the proclamation of God's kingdom, having come in Jesus. So this morning, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, the, from what we understand, the earliest written account of the gospel, and in particular of the resurrection accounts. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the story of the Bible, in particular the New Testament writings, While the New Testament is writing of earlier events, those writings are written much later than the letters of Paul. This is one of the earliest letters that we have uh, obtained in history. Now, we'll be looking at the gospel or the good news of Jesus summarized by Paul in this passage in the first letter to the church in Corinth. For the record, we know that this isn't the first letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, In chapter 5, Paul notes that he's written them before. And so this is the first letter that we have. Uh, But it is technically not 1 Corinthians. Fun little Bible fact there. Uh, Specifically, we're going to look at three things about the gospel. The centrality of the gospel, the reliability of the gospel, and the effects of the gospel. Let's begin with the centrality of the gospel. For this, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 15. So the word that the video uh, utilized and that uh, we have from the Greek writings is, uh, we we say evangelion, you might say euangelion. Um, Before we look at how the gospel is central to the church, the question for us today is, what is the gospel? If someone were to ask you guys, hey, what's the gospel? What, What does it mean to be a Christian? Why are you a Christian? What is the gospel? I would think that many of us would say it Um, maybe with some overlapping 
truths, but we might all summarize it a little differently. Um, perhaps we say Jesus died for my sins, so I go heaven. Uh, perhaps that we can have eternal life. Maybe you'd utilize the passage, John 3.16. Uh, some people I've heard use the B-I-B-L-E acronym, uh, basic instructions before leaving earth. Please don't use that. Um, it's, not, it's not what it is. Uh, it's anything but basic. The word Bible is not an acronym. It's a word. It means library. And it's not instructions. It's good news. Um, and before leaving earth, well, we'll get to that. Still, the Greek word for gospel is evangelion. This term was not specifically a Christian word. So uh, the church in that day, the apostles in particular, when they take this word and utilize it, they are engaging with their culture. They're using a term that the culture in the ancient Near East would be familiar with. An evangel was a pronouncement of a pivotal historical event that had life-altering implications for its hearers. So, for example, when a new king would be throned, uh, there would be a pronouncement in the city courts. Or if your nation is off at war and say you win or lose, a rider would ride back into town and, and gather people in the city courts and announce an, an evangel, an announcement that, had, that stated the world has changed, our lives are different now. Something has changed. Something that has happened that changes our future. And so they utilize this term. They contextualize their message by using a well-acquainted term for them. So much so, upon hearing the phrase in their preaching, ancient Near Easterners had no choice but to listen when they say, come and hear the gospel, the Evangelion of Jesus. And note, that this is how the term evangelize was developed. We're spreading the gospel. We're sharing this term. Or we're part of a branch called evangelicalism. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1, let's check this out. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn, in which you also stand, through which also you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was raised, and that he was, uh, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, it's important for us to note here, and if we were to read the entirety of chapter 15, uh, Paul specifically addresses, so we know the context that in this community, in this church community, there are people there who do not believe that the resurrection will happen. Uh, the resurrection is sort of a newer view for them. There was some in later Judaism, but in early Judaism, there's not a lot of talk of life after death. And so this, there, there is, in particular, this is a period of Judaism called sectarian Judaism. So there's four sects in, in the New Testament. We know of the Pharisees and uh, the Sadducees, but the Essenes in particular, uh, well, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And so people who have converted to Christ from that sect are denying the resurrection, that there will be no life after death, and they're even denying that Jesus himself resurrected from the dead. This reflects also in their context, the Greek context, they believe the body is subhuman. 
And so it's not about a resurrected body. It's inferior. It's about per perhaps some sort of nirvana or resurrected spirit. But the gospel and the fact that Jesus resurrects bodily shows us that we are not just a soul with a body, but we are mind, body, and soul. We are not just our soul, but we are our body. That's why the physical matters just as much as the spiritual and the mental. So the gospel that was preached by Paul, received by Corinth, they also now stand and are saved by this good news. And so just as Paul started this letter, if you were to be beginning of 1 Corinthians, with the gospel and its importance, so he concludes with the gospel. My wife astutely last night pointed out that in the context of this letter, if you read 1 Corinthians, it's, it's brutal for a few chapters there, all the correction that Paul is bringing to these baby believers. Corinthians is one of his early letters, so these are young Christians and they've really gone off the rail. And he corrects them in a lot of practical ways, a lot of implications for the gospel. But then he comes back again and reminds them of what truly matters, what truly is our foundation, what is the reason why we turn our lives over to Jesus. It is the gospel. In this, we see Paul uh, evidencing that the promises of God to the exiled Israel have been fulfilled in Jesus. When he uses the phrase, according to the scriptures, this is where Jesus is now starting to fulfill much of the Old Testament promises. Notice that Paul says that you are being saved. Not that you have been saved. It's kind of an interesting terminology. Because we would say, if we're a Christian, we are saved, right? But it's also that we are being saved. That is the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom has come, but it's still coming. Jesus is king. He's been crowned, but his kingdom is still being ushered in. We are saved, but we are still being saved. It is what we call, uh, what theologians call the overlap of the ages. Or this already not yet phase, where we are already one thing, but we are still being, that is still being fully realized. Uh, there's an analogy that I don't, uh, forgive me, I don't know who I heard this from, but uh, in World War II, in particular, I thought it was C.S. Lewis, but it's not, but, um, and when the Allies, well, when Nazis and, and uh, when they surrender, uh, when Nazi Germany surrenders, uh, the battle is over, the war is over, but there's still many battles that take place months after the war is over. Because the news has to get out around Europe. The news has to be given that the war is over. There's many battles that still happen. Deaths still happen. Defeat still happens in some way. But the war is over. And that is what the resurrection is. That's why Paul in Colossians says that he's disarmed our enemy and the principalities of this world. That Satan has no power over followers of Jesus. They are without power for our salvation now. They cannot take us. So we, we are saved, but we are being saved. Tom Schreiner writes, Believers begin by means of the gospel, and they continue to stand in the gospel. The gospel isn't just what saves you, it's what changes you and sustains you. So it doesn't just save you. It's not like gospel is step one, and then we go forward. 
No, the gospel is the means to enter the steps and then to get, move on to each and every next step in our sanctification, in our following of Jesus. In verse 2, it's interesting that he notes that uh, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, if you persevere. Uh, now, I, I come from the thought that I, I don't believe that believers can lose salvation. Uh, I do believe that if someone were to walk away from the faith, they weren't necessarily a believer. And I, I get that more from the parable of the soils with Jesus, that uh, some will fall, seeds will fall on rocky soil, a plant will sprout up, but then life's hardships will come and choke them away, and they die. And they were never really in Christ. Their roots were not in. Perhaps that's some semantics, theological semantics, but Paul, regardless, is saying that the way you persist is by standing in the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, he gets to it in verse 3. He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now, he's referencing, um, well, th this phrase in particular, that, in particular, that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures, we believe might be the earliest creed, the earliest uh, doctrinal statement, if you will, of the church, something that you would memorize. Wow, it's loud up there. Uh, that kids would memorize in Sunday school. It is the foundation of their faith. But notice that the burial confirms his death. And notice that the witnesses are what confirms the resurrection. When they say accordance with the scriptures, Jesus foretells, Jesus had foretold his resurrection, yes, but even the Old Testament, if you were to look at Psalms, uh, they're all throughout the Psalms, the prophet Isaiah, there are many prophecies of the resurrection. And even the possible third day, that's an interesting note there that he says on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, it's not a common summary in some of the other gospel summaries in our scriptures, adding that caveat on the third day. But there's a lot of illusions or uh, yeah, writings in the Old Testament that are alluding to a third day. So Paul is saturating his gospel presentation, showing how it's rooted in our historic faith. But now what, well, what is the gospel then according to Jesus, because if this is how Paul summarizes it, how does Jesus summarize it? Well, in Mark 1, starting in verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came to the city of Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. So for Jesus, the good news uh, is more about the coming kingdom. And perhaps his life, death, and resurrection are the means by which the king is crowned, that God has now become king. That the order of the, of the world and the entire universe has been restored uh, in God's order. Now those are the gospel summaries according to Paul and Mark, some of our earliest gospel summaries. Uh, before we dig a little further, I do want to say, as we compare uh, Gospels, let's look at a couple Gospels of our culture. How does our culture seek uh, nirvana, peace, 
uh, right living, happiness, joy, whatever they may, may call it. Well, there's a couple big cultural gospels that we ought to confront when we share our gospel summary. One is the gospel of self-actualization, a big psychological term, uh, but essentially it's becoming everything that you're capable of, doing what makes you happy, being the real you. But see, when Jesus shares his gospel, and when the writers of the New Testament summarize it for us, they summarize that who we are is selfish and in opposition to God's character. So that gospel fails us. If the gospel is about being you, be the real you, do what makes you happy, well, we know that what makes you happy really hurts you. I think of my little baby, how often she wants to do things that will hurt her. That is how, that is the error in this gospel of self-actualization. What about the gospel of progressivism? Not just simply, uh, not simply talking about politics, but more just the idea that human history is constantly on the uptick, that we are progressing as humans, that we are always getting better, that we are always achieving a higher state of living, a higher morality, that through policy and technology, we can become the best humans possible if we just do things a little better and if we get rid of the bad stuff, hence cancel culture, right? But the problem there is by whose standard of goodness? Goodness without a God is wavering. Another gospel of our culture is the tolerance movement. You do you, speak your truth, live your best life now. That one kind of floats in the church too by someone I'm not a fan of, but um, it's, a, it's very self-helpy, not rooted in Jesus. It's pointing you inward instead of upward. The problem with this gospel is that the tolerance movement is in itself intolerant of people who are intolerant. Um, so give you a blunt example that, hey, let's accept everyone. Well, what if someone comes in the room and says, I don't want to accept anyone. I hate everyone. Well, tolerance should say we should still accept them, even though we disagree. Cancel culture shows us that the faults in that. It's really impossible to accept everyone in their thinking uh, in that, by that worldview. That that gospel itself fails us. What about gospels within the church that are, being, that are adding something to Paul's gospel here or Jesus' gospel here? Uh, the big one that has plagued church history, and we see it now, but we've seen it in every generation and century for the last two millennia, is the gospel of nationalism. The gospel warrants us to uh, assume political power, to take it and make it about Jesus, to legislate the apparent morality of God, uh, pledging allegiance to a country, killing sisters and brothers in Jesus on the other side of a flag for the sake of your own flag. That's putting your citizenship in your earthly country above your heavenly citizenship. That's where Anabaptists, right? We, we've not been for killing people, in particular, in war. One of the reasons is not just the non-resistance of Jesus, but because our allegiance is to the kingdom, not to our country. 
And so how can we, in good faith, in following of Jesus, kill someone who is a brother or sister in Christ under another flag that we might be at war in in some century? That's placing my identity as an American citizen above my identity as a heavenly citizen. So we always choose the kingdom of heaven before the kingdom of America or the kingdom of wherever you're from. But this has been a thing that has plagued church history from the beginning when we started in the fourth century getting tied into the Roman Empire. When the gospel was trying, starting to be legislated. And what do we know? Why is this a false gospel? Well, Jesus and Paul, in particular in Romans, showed us that the law doesn't actually change our hearts, but it exposes our hearts. So legislating a Christian morality doesn't actually change people. If anything, it might deter people. And how else is this a false gospel? Well, we're not citizens of this country alone anymore. That is subservient to our citizenship of the eternal, everlasting kingdom. What about making majors into minors? Man, there's, the thing about the Christians that non-Christians usually ask me is, why are there so many different churches? There's thousands of us. We've divided over some big things, but sometimes some pretty petty things. Some things that, if we were to look at Paul here, or Jesus, what he claims to be the majors, we're not dividing over that. We're not dividing over whether or not the resurrection happened. We're not dividing over whether or not Jesus died for our sins, whether or not Jesus is king. No, we're dividing over whether babies or believers should be baptized, whether the gifts of the Spirit are real or not, whether there's election or free will, whether the earth is young, old, whether God created through evolution, uh, whether women can be pastors or not, our end times views, if there's a rapture or not. How, how are these false gospels? That's adding something to our gospel. That is the modern day, you must believe this and this or else you're out. I can't gather with you. Now the historic church has always said, we major on majors and we keep minors as minors. The way we see this is one of the oldest creeds is the Nicene Creed from the fourth century. Now this was in response to people doubting whether or not there was a trinity and whether or not all three members of the Trinity were equally God, but not each other. But even in this, if you were to look up the Nicene Creed, there is not much outside of the Gospel and the Godhead. You'd be surprised what the historic church has stood on and what they have not divided over, in particular the early church. But these little things, which I'll be honest with you, like, I like discussing all these things. I think Zondervan uh, Publishers uh, makes a lot of great books that have like four views on baptism or three views on the end times or all these different things. I think they're fun to talk about over a cup of coffee or something like that, but that's not something we need to divide over. Man, so, I know each of you in this room, I know quite a few of you have varying views on what I just listed. That's okay. We're not called... Um, believer Baptist or infant Baptist. We're not called free will people. We're not called young earth people or old earth people. We're called Christians. We follow Jesus. That's what defines us, not our view on the age of the earth or on the end times or whether women or men can be pastors, anything of that sort. No, what the banner we pledge allegiance to is Jesus. 
is the gospel of Jesus, that he is now king. And so, when Paul here is summarizing the gospel very succinctly for the first time in church history for us, he is summarizing it simply as he died in accordance with the scriptures for our sins, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared to many. John Orberg writes, salvation isn't primarily about going to a good place, but becoming a good people. And T. Wright writes that resurrection, we must never cease to remind ourselves, did not mean going to heaven or escaping death or having a glorious and noble post-mortem existence, but rather coming to bodily life again after bodily death. Notice that in both Jesus and Paul's gospel, there's not really much about going to heaven. That's not the aim. The aim, heaven is not the God, God is the God. Heaven would be hell if God wasn't there. Heaven is only heaven because that's where God is right now. Heaven is actually a term utilized in the scriptures more out of respect that Jewish tradition would not use the word Yahweh. So they made the word heaven in place for God's space. It is where God is. But in Christ's coming, heaven has now started coming here. That's why the Lord's Prayer, how Jesus taught us to pray, is we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why in Revelation we see the old earth passing away, the old heaven, and there's a new earth and a new heavens. The heaven is descending onto earth. Finally, the overlap of the ages is complete. That there's a consummation of all things that Christ, the, bri uh, the, the bridegroom, is coming to dwell with his bride here on earth. Now, yes, I'm, I'm not saying we don't go to heaven. Um, that is not what I'm saying, but the point is not going to heaven. So when we present our gospel, it's not, hey, where you, the question being, where are you going to go when you, when you die, doesn't usually work for non-Christians a lot of the time. Um, because that's not even necessarily a thing for them. It's like asking a Sadducee, hey, where are you going to go when you die? And they're like, well, I don't believe anything happens. That's not a good starting point. The main thing, the main thing we get people to have to confront is the reality of Jesus, his life, his death, the empty tomb, and the resurrection. If the gospel is something that happened, and everything's different now, it is news that something happened and it's, the world has changed now. Um, and so that's why Paul summarizes it this way. That's why Jesus summarizes it that way in Mark's gospel, that the kingdom has come. Christopher Hudson writes, Our sins are mere symptoms of larger problems of the tyranny of death, which was defeated by Christ's resurrection. And then N.T. Wright continues, Death is the last weapon of the tyrant. And the point of the resurrection, despite much misunderstanding, is that death has been defeated. Resurrection is not the redescription of death. It is the overthrow, and with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on it. That's why we traditionally as Anabaptists can have that faith. That even to the point of death, we can face it. From the beginning, they stared at nails, 
nailing to them, them to a cross, or perhaps to a boiling kettle where they would be burned alive. Now we can, hopefully in faith, even if it came to it, stare down the barrel of a gun. But knowing that those whose power, earthly, temporary powers, depend on violence, on utilizing death for power, that enemy has been defeated. Christ defeated it. He disarmed it. That's where death, where is your sting? Death is not the end. Simultaneously, I think we've made the gospel both too small and too big. We've made the gospel about us. This is the small part. Getting out of the jail of hell for free so we can go to heaven and live forever. It's more about me and feeling good and going to a better place rather than know that God is king. He's invited us. He's, he's restored us back to the way he made us. We're, we're to be co-heirs with him, to be a part of restoring and bringing redemption and worshiping him here in our lives and in the coming age after the resurrection of all things. It's made it more about us and less about King Jesus. But simultaneously... We've made it too big, making major, majors out of minors and minors out of majors. We've, made, we've added things to our gospel. Man, when we read the New Testament and see a couple of high schoolers and I are going through Galatians and, man, seeing the things that they add to the gospel, Paul is reminding them, no, cut that off. That's not part of the gospel. They're important things. They're not what makes someone a follower of Jesus or breaks someone as a follower of Jesus. Let's look at the reliability of the gospel that Paul writes. In verse 5, he says, he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter, Simon Peter. Then he says to the twelve. Now note here, uh, at this point, the twelve are not the twelve. It's debatable whether or not there's already a new apostle in there, but arguably Thomas isn't there either, so it's still kind of 11. Uh, it more seems like it's a term. It's almost like that's the band, it's, that's the group. If you had a, a friend crew, if you guys had a nickname growing up, um, if one of your friends wasn't there, the group was still called the group. We're still called LifeBridge, but not everyone's here right now. So it just seems to be a term for them. So don't let that uh, deter you from the validity, validity of this. So he appears to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Some of your translations might say, have gone to sleep. And uh, I think New Testament scholars tend to like that more in particular in light of the resurrection, that death is simply temporary. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' little brother, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's Paul. Now, there's a couple misunderstandings that when people confront these, uh, these passages, um, culturally we get attacked at saying these, you know, the writings, the accounts of the resurrection are decades later. And yes, the gospels are written quite a few decades after the life and death of Jesus. Uh, but no, 1 Corinthians, this is written within about 15 to 20 years, are what pretty much all historians believe. And so that's why Paul is referencing that in this small town that we live in, 
you can go visit these people. This is not, imagine if someone died here and, and, and resurrected three days later. About a decade and a half later, if a lot of us still live here, I mean, there's verifiable, there are witnesses that can go, you can go ask and verify. Yes, some may have gone away. Some may have fallen asleep. Some have died. But no, you can go ask the witnesses. Now, the resurrection accounts were problematic in the Gospels because uh, they began with women. And notably here, Paul doesn't actually state the women in the order. Uh, the debate there is that perhaps he's talking to a Roman culture and he knows that that's going to have no credibility to them. It's not demeaning the, or discounting their, them having seen it, but he's talking to a culture that perhaps would have been like, so what? Um, because in that day, in that patriarchal society, women were subhuman and their word, their testimony did not count in court. But here's the historical facts that he is summarizing in that even today, historians, even agnostic or atheist historians will acknowledge there are four. One, that Jesus existed. There's too much evidence that Jesus existed, the man Jesus. Two, that he died, that he was, that he was crucified. He was put to death by the state. That there was an empty tomb and that there were many, many witnesses. Those are the four historical facts that we have to do something with. And that's basically what's summarized in, in Paul's gospel message. That this happened, the world changed, what are you going to do about it? How has your life, how has your world changed? Craig Keener, uh, he's a New Testament background commentator. He wrote, were this evidence being cited for a war about which we often take the word of a single ancient author or any other event in history, no one today would think to deny it. That some regard this evidence as insufficient proof of the resurrection's historicity may indicate more about their own presuppositions concerning the existence or activity of God or his vindication of Jesus. Essentially he's saying that much of our his historical understanding of basically anything prior to a couple hundred years ago, we mainly have sometimes one source and sometimes they are centuries removed. And we don't doubt, we don't question that these things happened. The trick thing here, and, and what I've found to be helpful when presenting the gospel and sharing the reasons for our faith, is more to stick with the historical facts and saying, what does that do for you? What, are you gonna, what is your reasonable conclusion as to what that means? Because if we start saying, here's the four historical facts. Jesus existed, he's put to death by the state, he, there was an empty tomb and there were uh, hundreds of witnesses. Therefore, believe in Jesus, he must be. Well, you're starting to jump to a conclusion that perhaps that person needs to come to. But helping them come to the fact that, hey, you don't doubt that Julius Caesar existed, but we don't have that many sources of him. And some of these sources are centuries, if not a millennia, removed and yet we don't doubt their existence, and yet for some reason, there are popular atheists that lead people to think, doubt whether or not there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And for a man in such a small town in a small Middle Eastern community, and of a likely an impoverished or maybe lower middle class uh, um, background, 
he had a lot of effect. There's too much evidence that he existed. Those four things lead to the reliability of the resurrection, the reliability of the gospel. That if Jesus existed, that if he was put to death by the state, that there was an empty tomb, and that there were hundreds of witnesses, what else can be the logical conclusion? Some might throw out the argument that they were all hallucinating. The tricky thing here is that even back then and now, uh, we still know, we have no known evidence that two people can have the same hallucinations at the same time. Even the best illegal drugs cannot do that. We cannot all hallucinate the same thing. Nor would any two of us hallucinate, see the same hallucination. There is no evidence for that. That's a hole in the argument of it's a mass hallucination. Now, the other evidence that comes, and this will lead into the third point, is the actual life change that happened in both, starting with Jesus' little brother, James. If you see Jesus' little brother, James, in Mark's gospel, James is like doubting Jesus a lot in Mark 3. He does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the King to come. And then, for some reason, after the resurrection... Yeah, Jesus appears to him, and but three decades later, we know by the historian Josephus that he's stoned to death in AD 62 for his faith. That's how much his life turned around. That's a lot to believe to turn around your life in such a way that you were doubting, mocking your older brother, almost ashamed, seeing him preach in the crowds and being like, Jesus, what are you doing? Get back here. Come on, go... You're crazy. And now, no, I'm willing to go and be stoned to death for my older brother, my king, my God. And then the other, and as we go into the point, seeing the effects of the gospel, that Paul himself, the man who was outright opposed to the way of Jesus, has somehow become the author of most writings in the New Testament, that he has been the first, uh, the main early church's missionary, taking the gospel to unreached people groups. Taking it to communities and languages and cultures that had never heard of Jesus. In particular, non-Jewish people. You see in verse 8, and here we are on the effects of the gospel. In verse 8, Paul writes, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me, not been in, or his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we, we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Tom Schreider sums this up, Paul's testimony here. He says, everything he is, everything he has done, must be ascribed to God's grace. And yet at the same time, God's grace spurred Paul to action. And he did not receive God's grace in vain. Just as last week with Jeremiah that one of the points was that it is not 
God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. Here, too, God calls Paul, but he qualifies him. He, he, He makes him able to, by his grace, do the work that he has set out for him. And so because it's news rather than instruction, the gospel is not instructions on how to live life. It's news. It's something that happened. It's nothing we can do, but something that has been done. Because it is something that happened that changed everything, Paul's life changed. He went from a persecutor of the church to one of the biggest church churches, uh, one of the church's biggest champions. N.T. Wright writes, the good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. The ancient hopes indeed have been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. The ancient sickness that had crippled the whole world and humans with it has been cured at last so that new life can rise up in its place. Life has come to life and is pouring out like a mighty river into the world in the form of a new power, the power of love. The good news was and is that all this has happened in and through Jesus, that one day it will happen completely and utterly to all creation, and that we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in the transformation here and now. This is the Christian gospel Do not allow yourself to be fobbed off with anything less. I love his British sarcasm there at the end. Louis F. Galloway writes, Receiving the gospel is discovering in Christ a new center of existence, a new power for living, and a new perspective from which to view all things. So the question begs, How has the gospel affected you? This happened. God took on flesh in the man Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified falsely by the state. There was an empty tomb. We believe he resurrected. He appeared to hundreds Notably, it says over 500, which likely means more in the thousands, considering they didn't count women and children as worthy of being counted in in ancient Near Eastern standards. It was verifiable then. We have some of the most evidence possible. This happened. God has become king. His kingdom has come and is coming. You are no longer outside the kingdom you are in. You are co-heirs if you are in him. You no longer are subservient to the tyrant of death and sin. No, you are a servant of the God of the universe and a member of his king's court. How has the risen Christ appeared to you, shaped you? How is your story a continuation of the gospel story, just as we see with James and Paul, and as the church perpetuated on and changed human history, so much so that we date the world 
based on around his coming. Now, there's a gentleman named Tom Bandy. I'm not familiar with him, but I really liked his question that he asked his church members to consider. He writes, what is there about my experience of Jesus that this community I live in cannot live without? How can your experience provide insight for the way in which others might experience the good news? How can the difference Christ has made in your life be made a real and compelling story for others that touches their deepest needs? The important important thing regarding the gospel message is that there's no... um, None of the gospel summaries in the New Testament are exactly alike. However, they all do contain the resurrection, uh, the incarnation, the resurrection, and that God is king. The kingdom has come. Some of them don't even include the crucifixion, in particular in Romans 1. The bigger thing is the resurrection. Because if you continue on in 1 Corinthians 15, which we might next week, it is part of the lectionary passage. Paul shows that the cross is nothing. It's empty if the resurrection didn't happen. We are people of the resurrection. We are people of the new life. And so how has the gospel changed you? How is it continuing to change you? How might, like Paul, you be able to, when you communicate the gospel to your non-believing neighbors and family and community and co-workers, how might you be able to communicate hey, they're asking, hey, what, you know, why is your life different? Or why do you seem to have hope? Or why are you so joyful? You say, well, I follow Jesus. And I personally even own, you know, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. But the thing I couldn't escape was there's these four historical facts that I couldn't come to any other logical conclusion than Jesus resurrected. He must be who he says he is. He must be God. God has become king. He's taken over the world. He is building his church. He is calling his people. He is renewing all of creation here and now, in and through us, by the power of his Holy Spirit. This happened, and this is how it changed my world. Perhaps it hasn't changed your world. Perhaps you've ignored it. Perhaps you haven't dealt with the facts But Jesus is king. Jesus has resurrected. He's conquered and disarmed our enemy. Jesus is king. The world has changed. Has yours. I'm going to invite the band up. Uh, As we enter into a time of responsive worship, I do want to encourage you guys to prayerfully reflect. And perhaps in this time, this is a great opportunity for us to be... um, taking before God, perhaps things in this week or in the season of life that we've carried, and uh, you you could call this confession or just owning or um, repenting. And then we encourage you to joyfully sing, and if you're able to, to sacrificially give as well. Um, And uh, next week we will be debuting a new means that you can give uh, digitally that we are starting to work with as well. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we will sing. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, thank you for becoming like us, for not staying 
in your space, coming down here to earth. God, taking on human flesh, taking on our humanity. And Jesus, for, for enduring that, all the discomforts and the hostility and the pains that come with just being a human day to day, week to week, enduring relations, uh, relationships and things of that sort, all the heartache and feeling that, and feeling the, just the attack of sin, the attack of the kingdom of darkness, but then for taking that penalty, making a way through your death, but ultimately for conquering that, for giving new life. We thank you, Spirit, for raising him to life. And now that you've given us and poured out your Spirit for the last couple millennia for your global church, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you continue to come work in and through your people, Call people to yourself, God. Use us how you will. Help us see that this happened. That you were Jesus of Nazareth. That you died a sinner's death. That your tomb was empty. That the grave has been defeated. That you appeared to many. Help us see that the world has changed. And ultimately, let our worlds be changed. We love you, God. We lift all this in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship, or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.